Thank you. You can be seated. Go ahead and pick up your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 17. This morning we'll return to our Sunday morning series on the book of Exodus. We will not go through all of the book of Exodus. We're actually going to end in chapter 20 uh, at the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments will be covered each commandment each week. And uh, so that will culminate our series on the book of Exodus. One more thing before we read the text, which is Exodus chapter 17, verse 8 through 16. Two weeks from today, uh, during our service, beginning portion of our service, we will baptize. Um, we have two people that have submitted themselves for baptism. Um, yeah, absolutely. Let's say that. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> and then um, at least four that I know of will be joining. Um, we have uh, a number of other people, and I thank God for this, in our auditorium today. Um, people who aren't necessarily familiar with Christianity, but they are, in fact, um, wrestling with the gospel, which is a great thing. And um, so, this is what, we're, what we do. And we're thrilled for that. I, th I think it's Honestly, probably the most refreshing thing, you know, for me, I'm sure Alex probably feels the same way, is to be able to share Jesus with someone who isn't inundated with a previous background in Christianity. So, I say that, uh, you know, at the beginning place here for, because we're going to be receiving people and for the church to pray um, for these 20s and 30s. At least four of them that I know. And uh, we've talked to two and two more are going to be coming up. And so just pray for them uh, this morning, right? Our text, Exodus chapter 17. The title of our sermon today is The War is Won. The War is Won. We're going to be looking at a text where Israel has its first war in the wilderness. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joseph, or Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. 
while Aaron and her held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. It's a long battle. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's bow our heads to pray. Heavenly Father, now we thank You for Your creation of the Lord's Day. We do set here each and every Sunday in the rhythm of our lives, week to week, the first day of the week, coming to worship Jesus, who has won our war. Yet we remain in this life and we have a number of battles that all of us will incur in the, you know, on our own certainly in our families, and yes, even as a church, we will engage in these things. But we know assuredly that Jesus has won the war. And so, with great confidence and security, we want to follow You, Jesus, and obey You. And uh, build Your people in Your Word. And once again, Lord, as we have prayed for several, four at least, and whomever else might be wrestling with a troubled soul, might they find the rest that can come to their troubled soul, the forgiveness of their sin, which can only be found in Jesus. We pray and give you thanks for these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was born in 1834. He died in 1892. It was on one Sunday when he was preaching. It was an Easter Sunday. I tried to recover the exact sermon and couldn't locate it. But he said this at the onset of that sermon. He said, Christ Jesus has won us a great victory as that church had gathered to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Last week, we made a commitment as a congregation on the elder board for the thrust of who we are, Christ Community Church, to preach the gospel, Jesus exclusively as the only way and the hope for salvation in our commitment to the, to the Word of God. And so for all of us, Every one of us, the gospel is, um, is never a settled issue. There's certainly a confidence and assurance of having believed the gospel, but the gospel is always at work in the hearts of those that belong 
to Jesus. And so, as we begin to turn our attention to Exodus chapter 17, please um, turn your mind and heart to Jesus. Settle that in the death and the resurrection of Christ. Because Christ alone can save you and forgive you of your sin and no one else can. And literally, that's what we're doing as a church family. This sweet group of people that we met with, Pastor Alex and I, this morning, we, we identified to them and they mentioned the warmth of our congregation. And I want to say this, you guys are, you know, that's always been the consistent testimony of our church. And it's genuine. And I really believe that's because it's the, you know, it's the gospel believed in you. And so therefore, you want to invest and you care for others. And so, as, as for those of you who may be wrestling with Jesus, please, this morning, even now, acknowledge yourself the sinner that the Bible describes you to be. Repent of that sin, and in your inner man, cry out to God to forgive you. Do not sit there with a cold and callous heart towards Jesus because that really is the main thing that we do at Christ Community Church and we always want to keep the main thing the main thing because it's essential. Faith in Jesus, as you hear consistently from this pulpit in our uh, Bible classes, is knowledge, assent, and trust. In simplicity, you must believe the components of the gospel which says God is holy, that you are in fact a sinner, not just that you sin, but you are a sinner on the inside and the out. You sin in word and thought and deed, and you must acknowledge that sin if you want to find the forgiveness of that sin, because it is only in Jesus, whose life, death, and resurrection never sinned, became the perfect sacrifice for sin. When you gain that knowledge, you assent them in your mind to be true, and then you must trust only in Jesus to save you. We can't save you. We're trying to point you to the one that can save you. And I'll tell you this, as the book of Romans expresses, Jesus has never let down a believer. Ever. Never. So as we turn our attention back to the book of Exodus, and we note this first war having uh, been in the wilderness, and we know that they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. We want to begin by, first of all, asking ourselves this question. There will be four questions to this. The question is who? Who are the Amalekites that are mentioned here uh, first time in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel. Now, I think there's two things going on here. Um, it certainly is a war, a physical war. And I think at, at times of this, as you read this text, Amalek and Joshua are paired up against one, one another. But I also want you to know that this is representative of two groups of people. The Israelites, which are God's people, and the Amalekites, which are Satan's people. Because that's all God sees things as. He doesn't see color. He sees we're all in one part of two groups. Now, who was Amalek? Amalek 
His grandfather was actually Esau in the book of Genesis. And you'll recall this. I think it's important we try to gather like some information about who Amalek is and who the Amalekites are and why is God so strong towards this group. You know this, church, that Esau had refused his birthright, sold it for uh, a pot of vegetable soup. Nothing wrong with vegetable soup. But the reason why he refused it as the first right and heir to it is that he despised the promise of God from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I want to be perfectly clear about that. That this wasn't just he did something flippantly and because he was hungry. Esau, in fact, despised his parents' gospel warning. And in fact, in the despising of his birthright, had rejected the Lord. So the Amalekites, who are the descendants of Esau, are God's enemy. Israel had enemies in the wilderness. They had enemies, as we'll, as you read throughout the Old Testament, from within, right? Those 13 guys that didn't want to go into the promised land outside of Joshua and Caleb. They had enemies inside the family, the church. People who caused trouble. People who denied Yahweh. Wouldn't give him his rightful place. And then they also had enemies outside of, and this is the first case, the Amalekites. This is consistently true for the church. The church can have enemies within. Paul certainly dealt with those people. Hymenaeus and Alexander as he brought church discipline to them. And John did this with Diotrephes that thought preeminence over his arrogance in terms of who he thought he was and how he was bestowing himself to the church. This is true. This is true for all of God's people. They've always dealt with these things. And so the Edomites, who were the direct descendants of Esau, and the Amalekites, who were a part of that, the Amalekites become the Israelites' long-time enemy. Now, to try to get a, an idea of what's transpiring here, this ain't flannel graph. I was raised on flannel graph. Nothing wrong with it. But, you know, they, like they'd show a war, and the, the, Sue Carroll would tiptoe that flannel graph to the other one and then knock them over, and they would still the same picture, and they're smiling, you know, or whatever. They, you know, they wanted to warm up the reality of what the Bible actually describes. Of course, we don't want to do that. It's a war. War's hell. Always has been. 1 Samuel chapter 15, these Amalekites rear their head again. And the Lord instructs Samuel to go to King Saul. We're not going to turn there. I want you to pay attention to this. This is shows you to the sobering reality of what God thinks about sin. And the Lord tells Samuel, go to Saul and tell him to kill the Amalekites. Kill King Agag. 
Kill every man, kill every woman, kill every child. Why? Wow, children. The Lord despised worthless Amalek. He even says in 1 Samuel chapter 15, hey, destroy all their animals. And their animals would be equivalent to their money. That's how right, people had resources in their herds and whatnot. He says, destroy everything about them. We know from our text that at one day he's going to blot their memory from under heaven, which of course he does in the person of Jesus. The Lord called him despised. The Lord called Amalek worthless. So King Saul, the exact opposite of King David, he goes in his own arrogance, and it's always the guy was ever concerned about, wow, I have my thousands, but David has his thousands of thousands. He was an arrogant guy who sought to be found out as their leader. Though he hears clearly the command of God, he not only disregards it, he brings back King Agag along with all of the animals. Now, if you could set your mind into this scene, because it's going to get real ugly, just as this text is real ugly, in the sense that it's war. Samuel Calls Saul aside, having seen King Agag, and he's like, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? God commanded you to kill everything. Kill Agag, kill all the men, kill all the women, kill all the children, kill all the animals. Kill it all. While he's Having this conversation with Saul, Saul, of course, is an excuse maker. God has no value with men who make excuses with their lives. I don't care for whatever it is or whatever condition it is. So Saul is wandering around and literally the text says as Samuel is reprimanding Saul, he's angry. Now, there are times that men should be angry. They should be angry over their own sin, first and foremost. But there should be a compelling nature of a right type of righteous indignation towards sin that is rapid. And towards specifically when there's a disregard to obey God. Well, as Saul makes his excuses and Samuel gets angry at him, he then sets himself aside. And if you know, some of you know the text, he goes over to Agag, he takes a sword, and he cuts him to pieces. That's how graphic the scripture gives it. King Saul spared Agag because he was willful and hardened. He cared about himself and didn't really care about God. Samuel obeyed the word of the Lord and he had it all destroyed. He obeyed the command coming from God 
knowing that the Amalekites hated the Lord. Here's the second question you want to ask yourself as we look at this war text. Why? You know, what did the Amalekites, why did they war with Israel? Well, since the Exodus, we know this as we dive into this, Amalekites, this is the first time he's mentioned. Actually, this is Joshua's first mentioned by name in the Scriptures, this being their first war. Yet the immediate text tells us absolutely nothing about it. Why the Amalekites wanted to war with Israel. Only we know this, Israel did not provoke it. This was coming from their hatred. Amalek, as Esau, as Agag, who's mentioned elsewhere in Samuel, possessed no fear of God. None. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Moses would go on later in Deuteronomy chapter 25 to write about this particular text and called Amalek an abomination to the Lord. All sin is sin. There are certain sins that God calls abomination. One of them is homosexuality. It's not the only thing. But in God's eyes, let's please try to look at it in God's eyes, if somehow you're getting queasy over this war, because people are going to die here, how serious God takes sin. Deuteronomy chapter 25 tells us explicitly, according to this event, it's a description that these Amalekites, these cold-hearted, worthless, despised people, attacked Israel from behind. They didn't care that they killed women and children. They didn't do wars as wars have been done historically, right? Men on men for property. And again, I'm not trying to advocate for that, but please pay attention to this because there's a war doctrine here. All wars, hell, there are wars because men are sinful. Israel was weak. Israel was wearied. They had journeyed for, the Bible doesn't tell us how long, but they had been in the wilderness. And we know that God had provided manna and water. God commands them here to wipe them out. To wipe them out entirely. What is it with the Lord in war? Because we know that Pastor Alex preached from Exodus chapter 15. Moses leads the congregation about our Lord is a God of war. What, what is he talking about? Well, I want to submit this to you. Just a couple things as we transition to the what about the why. There are wars that are just. There are wars that are just. And killing everything that was a part of the Amalekites showed that the Lord was actually giving them an act of mercy so that others wouldn't go up, grow up and reject Yahweh and more people would go to hell. So even in this powerful strength, the Lord manifests Himself how much He hates sin, and He hates sin that it not be perpetuated across the globe because the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Amen. 
That's why it took place. This is why throughout the Old Testament, God's people have to deal with the Amalekites. Well, what, as we transition in this, happens here? What does Israel do? And again, there's a historical war that's happening here, right? And it's a just war. God doesn't tell Moses and Joshua to hold a peace treaty. No, these people are hellacious. Somebody's got to stand up to them. They're attacking God's people. You know, the clearest picture, some of you have been in war. You know, I wasn't. My dad was in World War II. He was in certain battles in the Pacific that he would share with me. You know, just to try to get your mind in this, war's terrifying. People die. What does Israel do? What does Israel do to win this war from this worthless group of people that is attacking them unwarranted? There's no reason. Well, the first thing that happens here, look at this, verse 9. Moses, who is the mediator of the covenant. Now, please understand this. The mediator is the one who goes between the Lord and God's people. He goes to the commanding general, Joshua, and he says, choose for us men. Pick out all the men, and we're going to go out and fight with Amalek. When it says go out and fight, they're going to kill them. They're not going to have, you know, you get a good sucker punch in, and then it's over with, and likely, okay, I quit, I quit. No, this is war. He says to choose men, because those men are going to go out and fight. At the centerpiece of this is Amalek and Joshua are going to fight undoubtedly with swords. And he tells them, okay, they've initiated it. Now we're going to go out and fight. Hmm. The church rests with so many feminine men. Where'd they go get these guys? Joshua go to the nearest drag bar? Moses the mediator. Joshua the commanding general. Joshua instructed by Moses will lead them in war. Follow this. There's a a type of discipleship pattern. The Lord, Moses the mediator, Joshua the commanding general, goes out and leads a group of men that represent God's people. Joshua fights with Amalek. Moses, the mediator, intercedes between God's people. Moses gets weary. It's only just three verses there, but it's clear. Moses gets really weary. He gets tired. He can't stand up. He can't keep his arms up. But it is only when his arms are raised to to the Lord, beseeching the Lord for victory, are the Israelites prevailing. And there's a time in this day-long battle where his arms are lowered and Amalek prevails, and it looks as if possibly all hope will be lost. And they'll be made slaves again, if not killed entirely. Moses wearies. 
Aaron and Hur draw up a rock for him to sit on. More men. Wow. More men. More God-fearing, Yahweh-loving men. Men. (laughs) What do they do? They come and they help and they aid. Why? Because, listen to this, Moses, Joshua, those guys that go out and fight, Aaron and Hur, all these men, they, they love Yahweh, they want to obey Yahweh, they want to rely on Yahweh, and Yahweh has told them, the Lord, that's what Yahweh is, He is really the great I Am, Jesus of the New Testament. So please listen to this, to your liberal friends. It's not uptight. Heavenly Father in the Old Testament, and Jesus is the cool hipster that tells his dad to chill out. It's not what's going on here. The Trinity itself has never functioned but for the sake of creation and most assuredly the salvation of the people that the Father would elect. Yeah. Amen. Save me. He'll save you if you'll call on him. That's what the Bible says. If you will call upon the name of the Lord with a repentant heart, Jesus will save you. That's what the Bible says. These guys love Yahweh. They're obeying. They're pleading with the Lord for victory. And guess what happens? The Lord gives them victory. Look at verse 13. And Joshua, as representative to the Israelites, overwhelms Amalek and his people with the sword. People are dead. Well, how? How in the world do you apply something like this? Where in the world are you going to find Jesus in all of this? He's dripping out of here. (laughs) Like molasses. How do we apply a war to us? Well, look what the text says in verse 14. The Lord tells then, Moses, after they have won, write this in a memorial in a book and recite it to the ears of Joshua. This is the first text, I believe, where the Bible is called upon, which was an oral history passed down, where God says, hey, write this down. Moses is to write a memorial of this particular war. And in that, he's to put the Lord will blot out Amalek. So Moses goes and he writes this down and he recites it, as I've mentioned to you earlier, from Deuteronomy chapter 25, probably perhaps in maybe some other portion of the history that maybe wasn't left inspired by God because we know that the Bible is a redemptive book. It's only telling us about the story of how redemption unfolds. But he also says, Moses built an altar. And as an altar, that altar's theme is the banner of the Lord. This isn't the first time that we've heard God tell a man to build an altar. He does it for Noah in Genesis chapter 8 and Noah builds an altar. He does it for Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and in Genesis chapter 13 and Abraham builds an altar to the Lord. He does it for Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. Isaac builds an altar to the Lord. He does it for Jacob In Genesis chapter 33 and in Genesis chapter 35, and Jacob builds an altar to the Lord and he does it for Moses. 
Moses builds an altar here. You have to ask yourself, why? Now think about this. All about the sacrifice. The whole Levitical systems in the Old Testament, all this happens prior to the giving of the law. We're about to get to the giving of the law. Everything happens there over a building of an altar after the word was written down. This is how man worshipped God. He would bring a blood sacrifice acceptable by God and the infinite details to that blood sacrifice isn't given and isn't really acknowledged until we get to the lawgiver, Moses, when God gives him the law. And yet we know this, that this altar is designed so that the man and his people would worship God. Hence we find for ourselves that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. Because the banner of the Lord represents this. It identifies this people with the Lord. It was to unify them together. So nobody's just doing this on their own. That they're the people of God. It unified them. And then it was seen as that God's people fell behind them. And they expressed the banner of the Lord. That God would protect them. That God would lead them. That God was going to give them the victory. It's not that Moses was a military genius. Or that Joshua was the best ninja on the face of the earth. So identifying and unifying and protecting and leading all rally God's people around Jesus. Now let's think about this as we draw to a close. Amalek is a type of attack. Right? It's a type of attack. It really represents for you as a person... Certainly Satan, because we can be attacked by Satan, but Satan is an individual. He's not omnipresent like God. He can only be in one spot at one time. Remember that. Don't get too carried away about the power of Satan. Yet, nonetheless, he is real. He's real. And he's not running around in a red suit with horns and a tail and a pitchfork. He subtly tempts you in the desires of your own wickedness and sinfulness, even in, for a Christian. To disobey God. There's also the world's system. The Bible talks about. There's the world's system. And to some degree, the world's system represents Amalek. But I want to tell you this. I think the most important thing is it, it identifies your own personal sin. Because your greatest struggle in this life as a Christian is with your own sin. And God's men deal with their sin. God's men deal with their sin. So do God's women. But God's men deal with their sin. They don't cop out. They don't blame it on something else like Adam. They deal with their sin. They cry out to God. They ask for help. Amalek is a type of sin for your life. Now here's the encouraging thing. As God would one day Wipe out Amalek, he's going to wipe away 
everything, every sin that you've ever battled with. When Jesus returns, I'll never sin again in my mind. I'll never sin again with my lips. I'll never sin again with the activity of my hands. All my sin will be done. Jesus will make me new. Jesus will make the world we live in new. And it'll last forever. So take courage. That's the courage that you have to battle with your sin. And yet you are not left alone because the Bible tells us that when you get tempted, He will provide a way of escape. Take courage, men, church. Jesus is going to wipe away all of our sin. Every bit of it. And I'm, glad, I'm so glad for that. I look forward, the biggest thing I look forward to about eternity past seeing Jesus is I don't have to fight with myself anymore. Maybe some of you ain't fighting with your sin. You're coddling it. Don't do that. Particularly you men, when you coddle your sin, you're not only harming yourself, you're harming your wife and you're harming your family. Don't do that. Joshua, then, to me, represents a type of the church. Joshua is us. We are the church. We are engaged in a war, and that war is real. And if you don't recognize that the war against your sin is real, you are losing and perhaps do not know Jesus at all. Because it's always going on. It's never stopping. Men don't retire in Christianity. They die. That's when it ends. Yet Moses is the mediator in this. And Moses held up sinful hands and weak hands to sustain his people. Moses was the mediator just as Jesus is the mediator between God and us. And when Jesus lifted up His hands on your behalf, He breathed His last. And the war was won. Jesus died. Jesus suffered. It's not a casual thing. He died. He suffered. His hands bore no sin. They show nor weakness, so much so He reached down to each of us some 2,000 plus years later and He's pulled us up to Himself. Jesus died and then Jesus rose from the dead. And as a result, for you and I, the war's done. It's over. Christ has won us a great victory, as Charles Haddon Spurden said. Christ, our mediator, literally sustains us as His soldiers now. Church, your sin has been atoned forever. And yet in this last thing, as a memorial to this, the church now gathers week to week under a written memorial that Jesus has won the war for us. 
It's the Word of God. We need the Word of God. We need, the, we need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to fight our battles of sin. We need to rely upon God and persist in the truth because that is where the battles in this life are won. Because the battles are many in this life. But please, don't focus on the weakness of who you are. Focus on the victory of Jesus. That's sure. Sin will be gone. So we find ourselves rallying around Jesus. And we do so to, to, to enjoy the means of grace in the sacraments. Because as the banner of the Lord of that altar is found in the sacraments for us. In baptism, we identify that Jesus is my only Lord and Savior. And that I identify with God's people. You need to be baptized if you know Jesus. And if you're a man, grow up. Grow up. How in the world do you expect to have a family and children one day that will follow Jesus when you passively look at this? First five years when we were in this church, I looked at Val and said, I don't think we can stay here long. Because kids were moving away from the faith everywhere. And I began to wonder, man, is there a good enough influence here? I wasn't worried about what was going on in my household. But when you got a parent against children of kids in the church, it's weird. It's weird. That's not the place. Men, you got to take this passionately. And if you don't take this passionately and seriously... You're getting run over! And I know that might be tough for some of you because we live in a cowardly generation. And the world's system affects men in such feminine ways. And it must be resisted in the kingdom of Christ. We rally around Jesus in the sacraments because we identify with Jesus in baptism. He's our banner. And in baptism, I am unified to the body of believers. And in the Eucharist, what I know is in self-assuredness that I can't win this war, but Jesus won it for me. Jesus won it for me. And so he stands me up. And he makes me throw my shoulders back. And he lets me know when you're fighting the battles of hell in your own life, perhaps in your family's life, and in the church, it's worth it, Kevin. Because you're going to spend eternity with me. And you know what I say? Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me from being such a coward. But in that weakness, man, I feel really strong because of who Christ is. In the sacraments, in 
the Eucharist, we find someone who is protecting us and someone who is leading us. And that's who this table is for. It's for those who identify with Jesus. It's for those who want to be united with a group of people behind Jesus because we are not just individuals. It is those who want, they know their salvation is to be protected by God and assured in God. It's freeing. We give thanks. Three things and I'm done. Pursue each other in love. Forgive each other. Man, you need to make something up with someone, forgive each other. And then, but listen, because we don't believe in weak love. That's not love. Hold each other accountable. How do you think you're doing well if you have a brother and sister that's living in sin right in front of you and you won't say, Jack? That's not godly. That's not manly. That's weak. For those of you that don't know Jesus, repent. Trust in Jesus. He's the only hope you've got in this life. Let's pray. Father, now as we close and we move ourselves to this beautiful, beautiful sacrament known as the Eucharist, awaken the hearts of your people in the church. Pray, God, that you would convict men in this room to act like men and to not cower and create every kind of excuse for those who are wrestling with the gospel, for those we know about and for those that we don't know about. You do, though, Lord. Convince them and convict them, Holy Spirit, of the reality of how holy God is. And war took place in this life because of the sinful wickedness of man. But thank God, you won the final war. And we'll live in an existence in the age to come that will never see war again. And we will love each other. And we will live in complete forgiveness because we won't sin ever and we will be accountable to each other in, in, in a rejoicing way with our King Jesus in a beautiful new creation that is too difficult to put into words. Yet we give you thanks that we're going to be there because of Jesus, your life, death, and resurrection. We pray for all of these things and ask them in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Church. Please rise and go receive the elements.